getting the teaching here today. Uh, this is part two. Last week, who is the Holy Spirit? This week, how can I experience the Holy Spirit for myself? So just a quick recap from last week because it didn't record and it wasn't on the podcast. But basically, what I asked us to do is to um, see the Bible as a three-act play. Act one starts at the creation and goes through the whole history of the Jewish people. And really, the point is this. There is one God and no runners-up. Whole of the Old Testament? There. Done it. And the people of Israel have had this God revealed to them at various different points. And they have come to believe that there is this one God. He has made himself known and there are no runners-up. However, that God remains somewhat distant. His name is too holy to be uttered. You know some things about him, but really he, re he remains sort of far off. But in Act 2, the person of Jesus, we see God become known come right up to us and stand in front of us. And we are able to say, along uh, with the first Christian teachers, the invisible God, no one's known him, but the one from the bosom of the Father, Jesus Christ, has made him known. So to look on Jesus, as he says himself, is to look on his Father. So he becomes knowable. But he says it is better for him to return after his death and resurrection to his Father, because then the Holy Spirit will be poured out on everyone. Not just a select few, not just those who happen to be living when Jesus is around, but on everyone who wants him. So it's like Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, God is coming closer and closer and closer to his people. So much so that in the person of the Holy Spirit, who is his very presence and power, the third person of the Trinity. He comes and dwells right inside the believers. Good? Good. That was last week. Didn't need to hear it. But as I said last week, the Holy Spirit is poured out, as Jesus promises, on the first disciples at the day of Pentecost. Let me read this to you. This is Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit, and he's told his disciples, stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit is poured out onto you. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And I just want to say this because there's people who've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Some of them waiting in church every Sunday for their whole lives for something to be a bit more real than what they've ever experienced. And they've been waiting. And some people have just been waiting for a few minutes. And others have not been in church and they've been waiting for life to have some real purpose and meaning to it. And Jesus says, wait. But then, when the day of Pentecost came, chapter two, verse one, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So it's like all the senses are touched. This is a violent, powerful demonstration of the Holy Spirit's infinite power. So they see something, 
the violent, uh, sorry, tongues of fire, they hear something like a violent wind, they are filled, they feel something, the Spirit of God. Luke's language here is like a drenching. It's like a pouring of water. A, a tsunami-type feeling is the, um, is the sense, a tropical rainstorm in the Greek. And they, they do something, they speak in tongues. It is a power encounter, because God is powerful. But for many people, power is not what their experience of church has been, and it might even make you feel a little bit uncomfortable right now. At best, church may have been life-affirming, and oh, I love it when we go to church, and it just makes me feel great, but yes, it's a bit hyped up, and uh, I'm not quite sure there's any real substance to it. Or it can feel like, oh, this theology is intellectually so satisfying, but it's quite dry, isn't it? And it's all in my brain, and it's not really doing anything else. Or it can feel like these people are the most caring, loving people in the world and they go out and they serve the poor and they change their communities, but it all feels a little bit hard work. All very good. All very good, but not enough. And particularly not enough when we look at what the church is like in the New Testament. It is powerful. It is an ongoing experience of the power of God to the people who come together over and over again. Consider what happens to Peter. Where do we get to? Verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound all this massive thing kicking off, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? And Galilee was like the backwater of the whole of Jerusalem. They were the stupid ones, the ones that were mocked. They were, I don't know what the equivalent would be here. Bakersfield? Let's go with Bakersfield. I'm so sorry to anyone who's from Bakersfield. Is there anyone from Bakersfield here? Okay, ha-ha, Bakersfield. <laughs> but they are utterly amazed. Everyone is speaking in their own language. Aren't all those who are speaking Galileans, then how is it that each one of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Jerusalem, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. Now, consider a drunken person. Picture them in your mind. Do that said drunken person, does he or she, speak in different languages that are intelligible to the people around? Or do they speak gobbledygook and do they kind of wander around stumbling and falling over a lot? The answer is the second one, obviously, because you can see that person stumbling around. So, saying these people are drunk, they are not saying these people are drunk because, look, they're speaking in all these other languages. They're saying these people look drunk because they're stumbling around like drunken people. Look at them, falling over the place. Because they have been met by the power of the living God. 
And this is what happens to Peter. Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what's spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, this is what we have all been waiting for. This is what you have been waiting for. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And Peter, having been scaredy cat Peter, denied Jesus, even knowing him, call curses down on his name, abandon him at his most important time of need, Peter, having seen the resurrected Jesus and now having been filled with this extraordinary power from on high, is a completely changed man and he preaches to the whole crowd, knowing that they are probably wanting to kill him because of what he's saying, but he is bold and courageous. And something very similar also happens to Paul. Paul, very famous, used to be called Saul, now called Paul was a Pharisee, went around persecuting Christians. Chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked them to, for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, i.e. the Christian faith, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly... A light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, which I always like, because it's like he's persecuting so many gods, he just doesn't know which one this might be. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. And then uh, Saul makes his way to a man called Ananias' house. And this is a great little interaction between God and Ananias. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, verse 10. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, i.e. you, come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord. Ananias answered, there must be some sort of mistake. I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with the authority from chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go! This, is, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my new name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show how much more he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And then Paul has a complete turnaround in his character, in his purpose, in his meaning in life, and having persecuted 
Christians, he is now going, I am going to preach the risen Jesus to everyone, and I'm going to go to everywhere to do this because this has been what has been revealed to me in such a powerful way that my life has turned around. And I'm going to spend time in jail, and I'm going to be persecuted, and I'm going to be not allowed into Rome, and all these sorts of things because this is the most important thing in the world. That's the power of God. But Peter and Paul and all the other disciples don't just preach. They also do all the things that Jesus did. They heal the sick. They raise people from the dead. They have miraculous escapes from prison because this is the real thing. This is real Christianity where the Holy Spirit is poured out on everyone to do extraordinary things because we're not playing at a game here. As I've often said, if you'd like to just spend some time with some lovely people on a Sunday, go to a country club. They're lovely. They're lovely. But here, what we're talking about is actual God. But it's not just the special chosen ones. It's not just the apostles and the disciples. It's just the ordinary, normal people as well. Chapter 10. Cornelius has had a vision. He's not a Jewish person, but he's a God-fearer. He's had a vision. Peter's also had a vision. And they um, basically come together through a sort of divine coincidence where... Uh, Peter then preaches to Cornelius, this centurion, and all his household. So he brings all his friends, he's got all his slaves, all his relatives in the house together, and Peter is going to preach to them. Now, Peter, I do love Peter, but he has, by this point, perfected the art of a boring sermon. He has been trying from the start, and he has now perfected it, and he has got to the most boring sermon of his whole time. But I'll read you just a little bit, because you deserve it. Uh, This is chapter 10, verse 34. Uh, No, let's start at 27. While talking with... uh, No, not that. Oh, yes, okay. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 28. Peter said to them, You're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. And then uh, Cornelius explains why he asked him to come. And then, chapter, uh, then verse 34, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how it is that God does not show favoritism. Just leave that with you but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, and blah, 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 blah. So we'll get this bit boring after that. Uh, And so boring, in fact, that um, he's doing his best, Peter. But verse 44, it's so boring that the Holy Spirit gives up. He basically goes, I can't wait for him to finish this sermon. I'm just going to get involved right now. And verse 44, while Peter was still speaking and going on and on and on and on, the Holy Spirit came on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been given to who? To even the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. 
for everyone, outside of your current experience. This is Christianity. And it's not just in the pages of the Bible. They've carried on throughout history. Let me give you one example. D.L. Moody was a sort of revivalist preacher from Chicago in the uh, 19th century. And D.L. Moody, his fire, had, his fire, his church had burnt down in the great fire of Chicago. And so he, he needed to go and raise money for a new church. And so he went all around, and he particularly went to New York City. Went to New York to um, raise money for the rebuilding of his church. Now, he had been a good, faithful preacher, but it, and he had quite a big church in Chicago, but it wasn't anything special. It was all okay. So anyway, he goes to New York. Things burnt down. He needs to some extraordinary thing to happen for everything to be okay for him. And so he goes there looking for some money. For some reason, and you can read about this in his diary, it's the kind of thing I do, uh, he finds himself in a cupboard. He's in a closet. This doesn't seem like a very good place to raise money, but he's in a closet by himself. And in this closet, this is what happens. He says this, One day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say that God was revealed to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Have you ever had to say, God, that's enough, that's too much? Please stop. But before long, D.L. Moody is preaching to tens of thousands of people. He goes to England, he goes to Ireland, he preaches everywhere. The um, ushers at his things were specially trained. They would be able to seat a thousand people a minute. He would be literally talking to millions of people. When I was first um, learning to pray for people, I was leading a thing a bit like this. And we asked people if they wanted to be prayed for at the end. And uh, not a lot was really happening. Uh, and I remember this one girl who I didn't know very well came to the front. And um, she was there, and she obviously looked quite emotional. Um, I didn't really know what to say to her, but I just um, felt like God saying to her, just tell her that her father is not going to um, have power over her anymore because I'm her father. Okay, I mean meaningless really, to me anyway, um, obviously not to her. But I just said that, and this little uh, girl, um, she's probably 21, 22, something like that. I just remember her, um, as I said that, just careering to the back of the room, it's probably a room this big, just sort of <laughs> running backwards into a pile of chairs and falling to the floor. It was very dramatic, and because nothing else was happening in the room, everyone saw it. <laughs> and I spoke to her afterwards, and she basically said, my father is a pastor of a church, and he was um, basically spiritually, manipulatively abusive throughout my life. He doesn't want me ever to come to this church. I, I felt entirely tied to him the whole way, but what I felt was all this experience of trauma and pain off in that moment, and I felt free for the first time in my life. 
I didn't even know what I was doing. Most people, when they pray for people, do not know what they're doing. But this is when church becomes exciting and powerful and life-changing. I still know her. She's still part of our church back in St. Mary's uh, in London. Completely changed. Completely changed. So examples like this of powerful, life-changing encounters with the Holy Spirit, they are humbling to us because they show who it is who's actually in charge here. And none of us really like to be humbled, do we? No one woke up this morning saying, oh, I hope I have some chance to be humbled today. I really do hope that I am humiliated and made to feel terrible, and I want as many opportunities to apologize for myself. No one likes that. No one thought, oh, good, an opportunity to be humbled. And yet, the God of the Bible is so powerful, we look at him and go, oh, yeah, we've just tried to domesticate you into a little box who will help me with my career. Now, he does want to help you with your career, but he wants to do so much more than that. He wants to completely revolutionize your life. I'm not making little of that at all, the career thing. I'm just saying, let's not put him in a box, shall we? He has the power to meet us in extraordinary ways outside of our current experience. And we cannot control how he meets us. He is in charge. Nevertheless, they are deeply refreshing, these experiences of his presence and his power, because they fill us with his living water, as Jesus describes it, his sense of love for us. Paul talks about the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts. Here's another American uh, evangelist. Now, the best thing about you Americans is that you are very open with your emotions and you're very free. And it's what makes you so lovely, okay? Um, But I just want you to bear that in mind because this is an American and now and again you get a bit carried away. (laughs) Charles Finney. Again, 19th century evangelist. This was his first experience of the Holy Spirit. Without any expectation of it, without ever having the thought in my mind that there was any such thing for me, ring any bells? Without any recollection that I have ever heard the thing mentioned by any person in the world, the Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. So it's a dramatic experience but he gets a little bit more carried away. He goes on. Indeed, it seemed to come over me in waves and waves of liquid love, for I could not express it in any other way. It seemed like the very breath of God. I can recollect distinctly that it seemed to fan me like immense wings. No words could express the wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart. I wept aloud with joy and love. I do not know, but I should say I literally bellowed out the unutterable gushings of my heart. These waves came over and over and over me, one after another, until I recollect I cried out, I shall die if these waves continue to pass over me. I said, Lord, I cannot bear it anymore. Over-emotionalism or the extraordinary power and love 
of the living God who wants to shed his love abroad in your heart. Now, I am a repressed British person, as you can tell. When I first became a Christian, I couldn't stand the songs. I just thought, I'm never singing those songs, those silly little songs. Jesus, I love you, never singing that. And then having experienced the Spirit, I just thought, I want to sing Jesus, I love you. I want to sing it over and over again. I couldn't get enough. Out of tune, bad rhythm, whatever, I was lapping it up because I love Jesus. And I wanted to express it. Now, there is such a thing as over-emotionalism, where our emotions are the only things that matters, and that's all sort of hyped up, and ooh, let's get into a froth of uh, smoke machines and whatever. This is not what we're talking about. This is a living, breathing relationship with the living, breathing God. Now, quite understandably, demonstrations of God's power raise questions in our minds. When the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples at Pentecost, everyone is amazed. And if you think about the most common reactions to Jesus when he's doing his Jesus thing, they are awe and fear. They are, I'm going to bow down and worship you, or please get away from us, you scary supernatural man. So it's quite understandable to go, this is a bit weird, isn't it? As um, C.S. Lewis says in the Narnia books, describing Aslan, I think it's Lucy. She's heard about Aslan, she doesn't really know about him. He says, is he a king? Uh, Oh no, he says, what kind of man is he? And uh, one of the characters says, he's not a man, he's the king. And Lucy says, but is he he quite safe? It's safe? He's not safe. He's the lion. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. The Spirit satisfies our need to feel love. He also releases us into a new dimension of spiritual awakening which does not mean that we then become these hyper-spiritual things where we need to pray about everything. Which socks should I wear, God? Okay, those ones. Which cereal should I have? Okay, that one. We don't need to do that. But we do, and we are released from a purely materialistic view of the world, which would be good for us, to actually see that there's something else going on. When I was first hearing about this, I read some books of people who experienced this sort of stuff. And really, everything that we've done here at the church, we've stolen from a church called The Vineyard, which uh, um, is now sort of all over the country and the world. But it was started just down the road in Anaheim uh, by a guy called John Wimber. He was a good Calvary chapel type dude, uh, loved the Bible, whatever. Um, And then, sorry, I don't mean whatever, loved the Bible. (laughs) Whatever. Um, but he, he kept on saying, there's got to be more. There's got to be more than this. There's got to be more, because this, is, this isn't enough. And uh, he um, was accosted by two elderly women saying, we're praying for you. And he found them very annoying, and they kept on saying, we're praying for you. Uh, and then uh, one day he experienced the Spirit in a very powerful way, completely changed his life. Anyway, he got very good at um, giving a theological and intellectual um, basis for actually the work of the Spirit. 
and I recommend reading some of his stuff. There's one story in particular that always stuck with me. He was on a flight back from New York here, uh, to here. And uh, he'd been preaching at some sort of conference. He's quite a big guy. And he says in the book, I just wanted to sit down and relax and just have a drink and sit on the plane and not worry about a thing. And as I'm getting onto the plane, I just sit down. I was thinking, oh, this is going to be great. It's been a long conference, and I can just relax and sleep. As he sits down, he looks over, and he sees this man across the aisle. And as he sees them, he sees, um, what he sees is a word across his forehead, this man's forehead. Not literally, he hasn't written something, but he sees this. And he feels God say to him, you've got to speak to that guy. He's like, I'm not going to speak to that guy. Particularly because the word across his forehead is adultery. You know, you don't want to do that. By the way, we haven't met, but you know, uh, I just saw something across your head. It was adultery. But God, he feels like God is saying, you've got to speak to this guy. So he leans over thinking, I'm going to say, I can see adultery in your head. But as he's saying, you know, a woman's name comes into his mind. I can't remember what it is. Let's say it's Jane. And so he says to him, uh, does Jane mean anything to you? And the guy goes, shush, 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 shut up, shut up. He's going, um, okay. So anyway, uh, I just felt like, how did you know? How did you know? Well, I just felt like, I feel like God sometimes speaks to me. And just, so anyway, they go to the front at the galley kitchen and start talking. And guy goes, um, and he, Wimber explains to him, saw this word above your forehead. And the guy goes, um, well, Jane is the woman I'm having an affair with, and I am uh, sitting next to my wife. So that's why I needed you to sh shut up. <laughs> so they talk about it. Wimber explains um, that he believes that God loves everyone, that God loves him particularly, that God wants a relationship with him. Uh, they talk through, he becomes a Christian there and then. He then goes, I want to go and reconcile myself to my wife. Goes to his wife, apologizes, tells her everything. She bursts into tears, comes to the front, says, um, what is this thing? I want to become a Christian too. Gloriously reconciled. The whole thing sorted out just there and then. I thought, that is what I want Christianity to look like because that is actually changing people's lives for the better. Otherwise, we're just playing. So that's prophetic awareness. The Spirit brings new praise, and the Spirit also releases us into a um, ability to praise God in a language that we don't know. Now, I know all of you are now getting very worried because I'm going to talk about tongues. Please don't talk about tongues. I'm going to talk about tongues. Bear with it. Hold on to your seat. Close your eyes. It'll be okay. It would be good if we just all got over it. Let's just get over tongues, shall we? Just get over it. I know that um, it's been used by various people in terribly untheological, unintellectual ways. It's also been used by other people to demonize other people. Now, tongues, let me just clear it up for you. No one has to receive tongues. It is not a sign of being an uber-Christian. If anything, it's a sign of being a total child of a Christian. It is the most easy gift to receive. Anyone can receive it. And it is given so that we could actually mature. So if anyone says to you, oh, have you spoken in tongues? You should go, well, if you have, you're a child, because they are, all right? It's not a sign of some sort of um, super spirituality. Paul says, I speak in tongues more than any of you, you idiots. 
And I wish you would all speak as much as I do. So it's a gift that is given to help us. Consider this. When you are your most elated or your most depressed, our words fail us, right? We do not have the words to express our deepest, most feelings. We just go, yeah, or because we have nothing. So it is with the gift of tongues. It is given to help us to express the inexpressible, to express our heartfelt love and joy towards God, to express our worship towards him, to express our deepest fears and worries, to express our pain and sadness to him. Paul describes the spirit as groaning with sighs too deep for words. He helps interpret our prayers, our feelings to God. So it helps us. It's there to help us. It's like a private little language. No one else needs to hear about it. It's just your private little thing to praise God, to pray to God, to worship God. So can we just get over it? You never have to speak in tongues. Don't worry. No one's going to force you to speak in tongues. But if you'd like to, it'll really help. Good. Finished. You can now unclasp your hands from your chair. I do remember... um, no, I haven't got time for that. I'm sorry, I'm going back to tongues. So, so imagine you were trying to praise God in a language that you don't know. So if you can't speak Russian, imagine you were trying to speak Russian. So it would sound ridiculous to start with. But we, you could start there... We participate, and then the spirit takes over, right? So I would just imagine yourself, I'm going to try and speak the praises of God in a language I don't know. It'll sound weird to start with, but I'm asking the spirit to take over. He then takes over, brings form and content to our sounds, and then we participate, and he gives us this gift to express the inexpressible, okay? So you can do that tonight, in your bed. Do you know the first time I spoke in tongues? I thought, this is all manipulation. It's all a group of people speaking in tongues together. Of course we're all going to speak in tongues, but look, they're all barking mad. So I said, I'm not going to do it there. I'm going to go and lie in my bed by myself tonight in an unholy flat in London, and I'm going to say, all right, I want to speak in tongues. And I was sitting on my bed, and I just asked God, okay, do it then. And I just... I mean, it's ridiculous. I just go, and then all of a sudden, the spirit just fell on me, completely took over, and I found myself speaking in tongues. Now I do it all the time. If he can do that to me, I'm the biggest cynic in the world. He can do it to you. You are all very warm and nice. So how do we receive the spirit? Jesus, as I said last week, says this about prayer. Just a couple of things while I find this. Uh, I don't believe in two baptisms. I believe in as many baptisms as you want to get. And I believe that everyone who's a Christian has the Spirit and he'll never leave you. But we leak. We're human beings who leak his presence. We leak his goodness. So we need to be filled up more and more. This is Jesus' teaching on prayer, Luke 11. I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. 
Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, nice to the point, Jesus, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How much more? Because he loves you. And he wants you to experience his presence with you the whole time. How much more? Now, I think the fact that Jesus goes on and on about ask, seek, whatever, is because he knows that we doubt. He knows that we need to be reassured. He knows that we think, oh, yeah, but everyone else, not me. And he's saying, no, really, everyone, all of you, all of you, all of you, all of you. Good, that'll do. Sorry to go on.